Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, The True Christian. So turn in your Bibles to Colossians 3, 22 to chapter 4, verse 1, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Slaves and Masters. Written in Colossians 3, 22 to 4, verse 1. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrongdoing he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You know, a great many people have expressed dismay when reading this passage. I mean, why, they ask, does Paul not condemn slavery and urge either an end to the practice or, at the very least, speak to this institution as one of the great evils in the world? Why does he ask slaves to submit to that which most moderns would agree is a great evil indeed? Well, let me explain. In the ancient world where this letter was written, the institution of slavery was deeply embedded into the fabric of that culture. As but one example, there are many estimates as to how many slaves lived in the city of Rome, but it's quite likely that at least one-third of the entire population were slaves. Some estimates even have that number higher. And that was Rome. Other cities were also filled with slaves. It's also true that a great many early Christians were slaves. So the concept of slavery wasn't theoretical or historical. It was a reality that these people lived. And no doubt, a great many slaves who had become Christians were wondering as to what their newfound faith actually meant in the way in which they lived their lives. So before we get to the details of this passage, let's understand this institution as it existed in that day. I say this is important because a great many reading this passage will think only of the transatlantic slave trade, which brought African slaves to Europeans and to the Americas, including the islands of the Caribbean and so forth. That slave trade was entirely racially based. But it wasn't that way in the first century world. Now, people became slaves in the first century Roman world, not through ships that were transporting them from overseas, but rather they became slaves in a number of ways. A great many slaves were prisoners of war. They were defeated armies and people that the Romans chose not to execute. Instead, they were enslaved. Others became slaves because they had broken the law. They were arrested. And in some cases, they were enslaved to pay off for their crimes. Still others were what we would call indentured slaves. These were people with debts. They couldn't repay them, and in consequence, they lost their freedom. Still others, and this does remind us of the transatlantic slave trade, they were slaves because they had been kidnapped. Still others were simply children born to slave parents, and they continued in that reality. So this reality was felt everywhere, as well as you know, in force when the Christian world was born. Please remember that the early Christians were one to Christ, not out of imperial palaces or through the force of arms. They were one through love, and they were often at the lowest strata of society. Paul was in no position to make statements about slavery, for that would have put him in the role of a political revolutionary, a man who's attempting to overthrow the Roman Empire. Instead, Paul was a spiritual revolutionary, announcing eternal life in Jesus. 
And furthermore, Paul had no power whatsoever to change this enterprise. I don't want to get too far afield, but I think it's important to hear how Paul, coming out of Judaism, would have thought about slavery. So it's true that there is allowance for slavery in the Old Testament. And, you know, for one, Israel was permitted to impose slavery on those nations who fought against Israel. Those were military prisoners. But even here, the slavery had limitations. And furthermore, in Exodus 21, verse 16, we are told, whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That is to say, the Old Testament had no allowance for the slave trade. Indeed, in the Old Testament, the vast majority of slaves were what I've already called indentured slaves, slaves who were in slavery to pay off a debt. So Leviticus 25, 39 to 41. If your brother becomes poor besides you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possessions of his fathers. That's to say, there were very few cases in Israel where people served as slaves for all of life. And many of those who did, did so because they loved their masters and preferred that lifestyle. Now, of course, the subject of Old Testament slavery requires more than I'm giving it here, but I raise it so that we might not think that the New Testament, which comes out of the Old Testament, is complicit in the idea of slavery. It's not. Indeed, in 1 Timothy 1 verse 10, Paul condemns slave traders as evil men. And in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21, Paul encourages those who are slaves that if they can gain their freedom, they should avail themselves of that opportunity. So the reality was that the vast majority would not have been able to do so. And so what are we to do now that we come to understand that Christ has come to set us free? How do we live? So let's remember why Colossians was written. It's written to a Christian church that was in danger of absorbing non-Christian influences and thus making a wreck of their faith. They would remember who Jesus actually was. They would resist being led astray by philosophies and the call to asceticism or going into Jewish legalistic rituals. No, Christ was supreme. He was not to be substituted with anything else. The Christians in Colossae must reckon that they had died to the elemental spirits of this world. Now then, resisting the false teachers was only half of the equation. The other half was putting on the new self, wearing the clothing of the born-again Christian. It had to do with rejecting the sins of the flesh, the sins of pride, and instead putting on the clothing of compassion and kindness and humility and so forth. They were to learn to worship. They were to learn how to live life within a family. And now Paul moves from learning to live life as a Christian on the workplace, and that's where slavery came in. And so since so many of the new believers were slaves, they no doubt wanted to know how to live a Christian life as a slave, for they had no ability to get out of their slavery. Can one live victoriously as a Christian and still be a slave? How is a Christian slave supposed to act? Now, this is a question because if you're familiar with the drama that surrounds the book of Philemon, no doubt it was written very close to the time period when Paul also wrote the book of Colossians. And furthermore, and more significantly, Philemon, the man who received that letter from Paul, was a Christian in Colossae. He went to the very church that received the letter of Colossians. Philemon 
was a Christian slave owner, and his slave, a young man named Onesimus, had run away from him, made his way to Rome, where somehow, and we could only guess how it happened, but Onesimus was led to Christ by none other than Paul, and Paul sends him back. But he not only sends him back, Paul says, I'm sending him back to you, Philemon, not as a slave, but as your brother. Now, it might be that Onesimus fleeing from Philemon left a great many Christian slaves wondering what their newfound faith in Christ actually was all about, should they also flee from their masters. So let's get back to what Paul taught Christian slaves. There are, in fact, three separate instructions here. Let's look at the first one. That's found in verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with the sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. So we might say that Paul's giving two commands here. The first one is obey. The second is obey with a sincere heart, or another way of saying that is to obey genuinely, not in pretense. Notice the command obey. And I've made a distinction as I've taught through this passage as to the difference between submission, which wives offer freely to their husbands, and the obedience, which is a part of what's demanded of a child. And here in relation to slaves, Paul uses the word obey, that is carry out the orders or the requirements that are given to you by your masters. Indeed, it goes further. Obey them, says Paul, in everything. But here, when we would think that, well, if that's the case, there's no end of what they must do, Paul adds the words, to your earthly masters. He means to convey that the authority of the master is limited in two senses. First, it's limited on this earth, meaning that death awaits us all, and there's no authority these masters have in the next world. That is, it will be a temporary arrangement. But second, there's something else here as well. See, these masters have earthly authority. They don't have spiritual authority. That is, they don't have ultimate authority. And we need time to investigate what that actually means. Keeping God Central summarizes the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. The teaching of God's Word via radio broadcast, social media, print, and video resources is not just about data. We want the Bible truth to be known, the truth that leads to knowing a growing relationship with Jesus. Our mission, with your help, is to effectively and faithfully share the good news across Canada and beyond our borders. We're so encouraged by the response of listeners. One wrote, your show is a constant that provided an anchor in an otherwise upside-down world. Through your show, I've learned so much more about Jesus, the Bible, and our faith. You know, we really can't do this without you. So please consider supporting this Bible teaching ministry with a financial gift today. Visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Paul says there's a limitation of an earthly master. The earthly master of these Christian slaves are not their heavenly masters. See, in that sense, the authority of the earthly master is no different than the authority of an earthly ruler and his demand over Christian subjects. 
You know, Romans 13, it commands Christians to recognize that God has instituted earthly governments and that Christians are not to resist their authority. But as we know, that obedience to government is not unlimited. There is a governor, or to put it better, there is a king who is the king in heaven and he reigns over all. And as the apostles, when they were being commanded that they would cease preaching in the name of Jesus, well, they simply answered that in regard to that command, they must obey God rather than men. And so it is with earthly masters. No, no, Christians should obey if a command is given, and they must do all that their master commands. However, they cannot do that which their heavenly master forbids. They should, in the present hour, look for ways to obey their earthly masters. They shouldn't do it begrudgingly. They should do it with a sincere heart. Notice that Paul spells out the wrong attitude. He mentions two things. First, he says, not by way of eye service. So what's eye service? It's an interesting phrase. Eye service is serving when a person is watching. And then when they're not watching, the attitude and the action is different. Let me suggest an example. We've all heard the expression, look busy. That is, when the boss shows up, look busy. And when he's gone, doesn't matter. We all know there are employees in all matter of industries that function just that way. They're active when the supervisor is watching, and that's it. Paul says to these slaves, don't be like that. The second phrase Paul uses is people pleasers. Now take this word out of the slave world and think of it simply in the work world. And I think we all know what a people pleaser is. These are people who are constantly trying to impress someone. They don't act out of conviction or out of principle. They act in such a way that will get attention. And Paul's arguing that Christian slaves fear God. That's their motivation. Fearing God bears with it the idea that in all things, their conduct is done before God. So work hard, says Paul. Always be aware whom you're ultimately serving. If your heavenly master requires this service, obey. And if your master in heaven calls you to obey an earthly master, just do it. We move then to a second instruction to the Christian slave. And this one not only calls the Christian slave to obey, this one calls on the slave to work heartily. That is with a correct attitude, an attitude of enthusiasm for the task. Look again at verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. See, the point here is that you're working with great enthusiasm, not because you think slavery is a good idea. No, no, that's not it. You're working as unto the Lord. But how is work done as a slave unto the Lord? Well, we need to think about how any work, whether it's by a slave or by an employee, is for the Lord. Let's think of some examples. Let's say you're working on an assembly line somewhere, putting, as we like to say, you know, widget A inside of widget B all day long. Meaningless, mind-numbing work. I mean, how is a person supposed to be enthusiastic about a job like that? How is that for the Lord? Well, consider, however, how this mindset that any work we do is for the Lord transforms all of work. See, if you're on the assembly line, I've mentioned, what are you producing? I mean, perhaps the end of the line produces a product that actually benefits people. Think of how God, in spite of human sin, actually benefits people. He makes the sun rise on the just and on the unjust. He gives rain to bless the land of the just and the unjust. Every day, God is blessing the lives of people. 
Now, you on that assembly line are a part of a process that also blesses the lives of people. Your job is to see yourself as a part of a process of God blessing people. Be enthusiastic for your participating in the work of God. You know, that's one way we work unto the Lord. We're working to bless the lives of people made in the image of God. And there's another way we do that. We work unto the Lord when we realize that our attitude in work is a testimony to the lives of others. You know, I've been told that in communist China, when persecution against Christians was so very strong that the work ethic of Christian people so far exceeded the work ethic of others that factory owners decided to give Christian workers freedom to share their faith because anyone who became a Christian just simply became a better worker. Now, I say this to point out that the work ethic of Christians makes an impact on companies, on society, as Christians are known to be trustworthy. They're unlikely to steal. They're committed to a full day's work. They live the kind of a life that makes the gospel a sweet-smelling aroma. They work for Christ. They serve Christ. And in the end of the day, that's what verse 25 teaches us. It's Christ who will reward faithfulness. And I pause here. And I hope you see the connection of the service of slaves in the first century to the service of Christian employees today. Now, I've said there are three instructions for slaves. So the first is to obey your master. The second is to know that you're serving the Lord. And the third, this is really interesting, verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And there's been among Bible scholars some disagreement as to who this wrongdoer is. You know, one group of scholars think that the wrongdoer is the slave who refuses to work with all his heart or might even steal from his master or create chaos on the work site, slacks off when no one's watching, constantly complains, creates unhappiness everywhere. If that's who the wrongdoer is, verse 25 is intended as a word of warning against refusing the commands of the master. But there are other Bible scholars who think the wrongdoer in question is the cruel master. And as we know, Greek and Roman culture often abused slaves. They were cruel and burdensome. These scholars think that what Paul is referring to here is because in the very next verse, Paul makes it clear that masters are to treat their slaves with respect. And so if this is what Paul has in mind, he means to warn masters who are wrongdoers that God will pay them back for any abuse of a slave. And in that case, verse 25 is intended as comfort and assurance to suffering slaves. Paul's telling them, understand this, God sees your suffering. He will not allow the wrongdoing master to get away with it. There is a day of justice that awaits him. Well, I, for my part, think it's quite likely that Paul means it both ways. God will repay the worthless worker, and he will repay the cruel master. Both. Any wrongdoer needs to take into account who they're dealing with. They're dealing with God. We come to chapter 4, verse 1, which is a part of the same discussion. I have no idea why the people who put the chapters and verses into our Bible made chapter 4, verse 1, a chapter 4, verse 1, and not chapter 3. Well, at any rate, let's read the verse. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Paul could have quoted Luke 10, verse 7. Jesus says, the labor is worthy of his hire. That is, pay them adequately. Now, we know that slaves weren't paid, but Paul was saying you need to take care of their needs, making sure they're treated with honor, the honor they deserve. What does Paul mean when he says you also have a master in heaven? I think he's reminding Christian masters of a basic principle. 
Matthew 7 verse 2 has Jesus saying, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That is, how do you want your master in heaven to treat you when you appear before him? Well then, you make sure that you treat your servant in the way that you wish to be treated. You know, it's been said that Christian attitudes towards slavery and their masters so radically affected the institution of slavery that the institution itself was destined to end. For only the Christian faith demanded fairness, even brotherhood, that should rule the day. Slaves were not lesser human beings, but they were brothers and sisters for whom the treatment was to be afforded with love. And masters were not to be maligned, but they were to be served so that their business and the society as a whole would not be torn down but lifted up. The teaching of slaves and masters is for this reason applicable to any work situation in which Christians find themselves today. No situation is ideal. Each situation can bring glory to God. We need to seize each situation and bring it in subjection to the will of Christ, even the hard ones. We really can bring the aroma of Christ into the marketplace if we will do that which Christ commanded us. Christians in Christ's name can profoundly impact a nation if we will act and work as obedient servants of our master. That doesn't mean that slavery is to be thought of in glowing terms. It was a nasty business, and we should be glad it came to an end. But the point is this, no matter where we live and when, we can serve Christ in such a way that we will transform even the hardest of situations. May this come to be even in our day. Thanks, John. John, what would you say to those people that who really struggle representing the Lord in their workplace? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the ways we can just represent the Lord in the workplace is that we do our job uh, diligently, that we put in a full day for, uh, you know, a full paycheck, that we uh, are honest and scrupulous in our honesty, and that we seek to bring blessing to the lives of others that we work with. And sometimes, even if we're in a workplace where, you know, we're being, uh, you know, treated not well because we're believers. I mean, simply putting our heads down and being faithful will testify. And when God opens a door, and he surely will, we need to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have, why we're behaving as we do, uh, what work means for us as a believer that we're doing it unto the Lord. I mean, all of those things, I mean, we have to ready ourselves to be able to explain that. Of course, we can't explain that if we're not faithful in our work. So all of that matters. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our study in the book of Colossians, The True Christian, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Are you searching for that little special gift or stocking stuffer for the kids this Christmas season? Well, you're in for a treat because our friends at Laugh Again have just the thing, Jake and the Christmas Surprise. It's a new children's booklet filled with hilarious childhood Christmas moments that'll have your kiddos in stitches and maybe you too. It's got full color illustrations, reflection questions, and Bible verses to spark conversations about the true meaning of Christmas. It's not just a gift, it's an opportunity to draw your family together and bring you all closer to Jesus. This special resource is easy on the Christmas budget. 
because it's free this month. Choose between this or our Christmas devotional, Quiet Spaces for Christmas, at backtothebible.ca. Choose one of them as your gift, and if you'd like the other, it's available for purchase. May this coming Christmas be a season of joy for the entire family.